Hello, Dr. Hélène Londemore. It's uh, such a pleasure to host you on the Network Capital podcast. In this podcast, we try and understand why leaders in different fields, business women and men, academics, thinkers, politicians do what they do. You've had a very interesting career spanning across countries and continents. And we are delighted to have a conversation about reimagining politics without politicians. You've done a bunch of work, but let's get started by understanding who you are and what do you do today? Thank you, Utkarsh, for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, I am currently a professor of political science at Yale University. I'm a French native who moved to uh, the US uh, when I was 25 to start a PhD in political science. But before that, I studied philosophy in France and political science, actually. So I had a sort of dual uh, interest at the time already. And I'm I started my, 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 my studies focused on the question of choice and, and human choice and how, how do we make the right decision uh, as individuals and as groups. And it naturally evolved, I think, uh, towards a, a study of democratic institutions, democratic values, uh, the meaning of democracy. And, and I ended up writing a, a first a book in French on, on the concept of probability in uh, the work of David Hume, the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, and then a book in English uh, on the epistemic value of uh, democracy, of, of rule by, by the many. And I, as you said, I am about to publish uh, a new book in English, Open Democracy, Reinventing Popular Rule for the 21st Century, where I try to imagine what um, democracy would look like if we reinvented it more or less from scratch uh, with the sort of uh, uh, right vision uh, and, and the right tools. Um, thank you. Uh, how did you come to choose politics as a field of research? Um, that's a very good question because I, I never had an interest in politics growing up. I, I was interested in novels, I wanted to become a writer. I then was fascinated by philosophy and politics in just a, a messy world of, of you know, conflictive interests, conflicting egos, and I had no interest in it at all. Uh, but then when I came to the US, first of all, there was this big political awakening, you might say, that happened um, more or less when I landed. And I, I arrived a week before 9-11. And so, you know, within a week, I, I had all these like geopolitical questions that I that I had to face in my Wow, that's quite a week to enter the country. Yeah, that was that was that was a big awakening, and then, but then somehow I I again went back to more academic, more intellectual questions. I I was not really following politics in the sort of a quotidian sense, where you know it's about winning races and 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 uh, beating adversaries, etc. I so I as, as a field, I think I was drawn to it because it's it's. In, in uh, the continuation of my interest in this question of choice, I think I, I, I reached the limits of what philosophy could bring me. Uh, and I felt like I needed uh, social scientific tools to, to address uh, the questions I kept running into. So if there was something about, for example, rational choice theory that I thought was really uh, intriguing and in the way that you could, you could uh, formalize human choices by visiting some assumptions about... Uh, uh, self-interest, uh, rationality, 
things like that. And so I, I think it, I, I basically, I think I'm driven by questions rather than, uh, you know, a taste for a certain methodology. So I, I, it, it, I think it was a natural evolution towards political science as a field, but I'm not sure I, I'm going to stay in political science. You know, I'm also drawn to psychology, to sociology, to ethnography, to all these other um, tools. And so I, I see myself more as a, uh, a traveler across disciplines. And uh, I just I just try to look at what's useful for me at a particular point of, of the inquiry, if you want. Yeah, and before we dive deeper into some of uh, some of the questions that you raised through your research, I want to understand what's the difference between, say, the culture at a Grand Ecole or a Sciences Po where you studied yeah. and, say, Harvard or Yale where you studied further and teach now? What's the fundamental cultural difference, uh, if at all? Ah, that's a very interesting question. So if you want me to reduce it to one... Um, I would say, and it's not going to be flattering to the French system, but I felt like when I was in France, I never spoke. All I did was sit in the back of the class and take down notes and look up to these really impressive um, teachers that I was, you know, brought up to respect and never questioned. And take on the wisdom of these past authors and similarly never really question it. Whereas when I came to Harvard, honestly, the biggest shock, the thing that blew me away and really attracted me to, to, to this uh, system it was the fact that you were the one supposed to come up with questions and even answers. And all these previous authors that you read were instrumental to your own questioning and, and, and the problems of, of, of your society and your times. And similarly, that was reflected this sort of openness to, to your own ideas um, and, and the need to come out of your shell and talk and, and speak up in seminars, which I wasn't used to, and took a, you know took a long time for me to get used to. It, it was reflected in, in the attitude of, uh, of professors. So in in France, I would just never bother professors. I would never walk, go to the office hours. I would I would rarely ask a question. And you felt like if you asked a question, it had to be a really good one that displayed your erudition and didn't really threaten the, the, the authority and wisdom of what had been said. Whereas when I, when I walked into um, professor's offices at Harvard, it was, what can I do for you? They, they, they just were there for you to listen to you, to help you figure out your own path. Uh, they respected your questions. They never talked you down. That was the main difference for me. Um, thank you. You've been very interested in questions about why should you do the right thing? Um, yes. let's blow it up and understand why should groups do the right thing? What's the intrinsic motivator? Ooh, okay. Well, that's a very deep question. Uh, I don't know that, I, that I've that i solved that one. Uh, so they, they should do the right thing because ultimately uh, it's better for them as groups and it's better for uh, the individuals in the group. And so... It, but the problem is like it's not always uh, that there, there might be a, a, a difference between what's good for individuals and what's good for the group. The big question is how do you reconcile those two things? Yeah. And, uh, and then there's a the question of uh, the group might do the right thing for its people, but it, this might require doing the wrong thing for people outside the group, right? So, so I think you've got a, a multivariable problem here that I think social sciences are, are precisely about trying to solve. 
Uh, otherwise, from a philosophical perspective, you might say, well, you, you, you know, groups like individuals need to do the right thing because, uh, you know, there are intrinsic rewards to doing the right thing. Um, you, you get back to the philosophical answers. But uh, I think I think it's very important to look at this question through the social scientific angle that that shows you all the, the tensions and irrationalities that can arise from the clash between incentives at the group and at the individual level or between groups. Understood. Um, would it be fair to say that democracy globally is in a state of crisis today? Yes, I think it's in a state of crisis. Um, I think we are reaching the limits of a model of democracy we invented in the 18th century, uh, which turned out to be not so democratic. And because it's not so democratic, uh, it deprives itself of the the resources of what uh, I call and many people call uh, you know, collective wisdom, or what I call democratic reason, uh, in the sense that these these models of democracy we we use and and reproduce exclude too many people from the center of power, such that their voices are not heard, their perspectives are not taken into account, and their their insights and information and wisdom are not factored in the decision making process. And I think we are in part in a crisis because of that. So. I, I, like you know, a lot of um, questions. I think this question has, has multiple answers, and it's not like that—that's the only problem. Even if you fix the democracies we live in along the lines that I suggest in my book, Open Democracy, by uh, reintroducing the wisdom of ordinary citizen at the center of power uh, and designing institutions better, you would still face all these problems that are brought about. You know say globalization or uh, technologies uh, or these other you know phenomena that we also have to face and so globalization creates problems for democracies because uh, they put them in competition with each other or in competition with other regime forms like uh, more authoritarian regimes like like china or or singapore um, and and so we are basically facing a, a wicked problem of of, of, of multiple sources of the crisis of democracy. And my work really only addresses one, which is the, the failure of institutions to, to track the, the, the collective wisdom of, 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 the, of the people of a given country. And I think it would be great to fix that. That would solve some of the problems, but it wouldn't solve them all. Um, is there a crisis between, say, the inclusiveness of the democratic process and the kind of outcomes it offers. Uh, somebody once said that uh, populism is what you call democracy when you don't like the outcome. And I think uh, this sort of uh, touches upon uh, the work that you've done around inclusiveness and uh, what the result is. Do you want to comment on this uh, quote or just provide color into uh, where you were coming from or where you developed this? Right. You, you, the quote, you mean uh, populism uh, is what uh, you call democracy when you don't like it, or is that what you just said? Yeah, both. Both. Like, inclusiveness and outcomes of democracy, are they at odds today? And uh, is populism a direct result of it? Oh, I see. Well, the problem is that uh, it's the conditions under which you, you practice inclusiveness, right? Um and if you practice inclusiveness in a, in a way that's not sufficiently deliberative, 
then you will bring in not so much the, the what I call democratic reason or collective wisdom as, uh, you know, uh, sort of mob thought or, or, or the folly of crowds, right? So you've got to be very careful about the conditions under which you practice democratic inclusiveness. And I think it's, it's part of the reflections in my book is to say, look, we need to create a system that's open and inclusive in a deliberative manner so that you get people to process their own preferences and thoughts uh, in a way that, that uh, will naturally filter out the irrationality, the incoherence, uh, the anger, potentially the racism, and so that you end up with, with the best of what democracy can produce. <clears throat> that said, I do think that um, it's a little too easy to say that any form of uh, direct democracy or openness to, to people's will is populism, uh, and and I think that I would accept that sort of a criticism because in some cases it seems justified. <clears throat> but only if we practice the same skepticism of or worry toward elitism. But elitism, which is the polar opposite of, of populism, and is constantly in tension with it, is rarely criticized to the same degree. And so I feel like. Populism currently is, a, is a, as a colleague of mine, John McCormick, would say, a cry of pain, and, and we need to take it seriously. And, and I think we've swung the pendulum too much towards um, experts and elected officials and elected elites for many years, uh, people who are supposed to have the superior wisdom, the superior knowledge of the solutions. <clears throat> and, and this populism moment is... is uh, a time when the Sunday the pendulum swings back, and if it swings back too quickly, and without reflection uh, about the best conditions to include people, then, then it might veer towards dangerous forms of populism. But I think the move towards more inclusion is good, and, and we just need to think carefully about how can we uh, open the doors of power of of places uh, where, where decisions are important decisions are made to more people without that, you know. Uh, drifting into the, the tyranny of the vocal minority or, or, or the tyranny of the, of the racist majority, actually. So, so it, it needs to be perfect. Yeah. Um, tell us, do voters select representatives or representatives select voters? Um, well, it's probably a little bit of both. Uh, you, you're, you're talking about uh, classic uh, electoral representation, right? So where yeah. Democracy is equated with the the rule of elected elites with the consent of the people, which That's I see, right. which I see less and less as, as a form of, of democracy. To be honest, I I think I've come to accept the 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 conclusions that um, an author like Bernard Manin uh, reached, uh, you know, in 1995, you know, in a very good book that I, I recommend to your uh, audience, the principles of representative government, and he said that. You know, we, we know from, from uh, ancient authors that election was always seen as an oligarchic selection mechanism for rulers and that the true democratic selection mechanism is actually random selection, so selection by lot. So we try to democratize the system to make it appear as a system where, you know, citizens rule vicariously and they've got a form of democratic power because they get to choose their political leaders. And yet it's true that this question of, of choice, you know, uh, 
is uh, uh, is problematic. I mean, we we see now that uh, money can buy you votes, money can uh, influence the way uh, candidates are perceived, and so you can manipulate voters who are cognitive misers and have little time on their hands to read through all the political proposals or, or you know learn about candidates. Uh, you can get them to vote for whomever you want and and so th there's a real question of who's choosing who um, i fear that uh uh you know in the u.s particularly where money plays such such a role the 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 choice is actually much more restricted than we think then again when you look at the at the results of uh of, of super tuesday for example you see that even somebody as rich and influential as uh, mike bloomberg wasn't able to to buy the elections after all so there, there might still be enough choice in the current system that uh, you know, completely corrupted. But what, what I'm talking about is not just returning the possibility of real choice to the, to the voters. It, it's really more about uh, changing the way we look at democracy and, and opening the door of power. So basically the door of, of, uh, of Congress, of Parliament to ordinary citizens. So that they don't get to rule vicariously through people they choose, and 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 really only choose among the, the list that's offered to them, right? But but open the, the doors of power to them in a, in a much more meaningful way. Yeah, in 2016, for example, uh, as you've written, it was an election between in the U.S. two extremely unpopular candidates, and uh, a lot of the people who did not vote somehow found themselves lacking of motivation. Um, we see that uh, such trends are happening more and more. So is this fatigue? Is this lethargy? Or is it just helplessness on behalf of citizens not participating in the electoral process? See, this accusation of uh, lethargy and apathy and uh, carelessness, it's typically an elite move. I mean, this is what you what you see uh, in a Seymour Lipset uh, in the 30s, it's, it's really, it's, it's when in fact the apathy and, and carelessness is endogenous to the system we have, meaning it's produced by the institution, the electoral institutions we have. I actually understand why people don't bother voting. You know, they, it's, it's not appealing. You, you, you get to vote between people that you don't really care about one way or another. So, so again, that, that's uh, the sort of wisdom that Bernard Manon had already in 1995. He was saying, look, elections are a genus-faced mechanism, meaning it has two faces, right? One is democratic because it's true. We have one vote. We, we operate on the basis of, of uh, the democratic uh, basis of one person who vote. But when it comes to candidates, uh, they are not treated equally, meaning we don't have all of us an equal chance of being elected, right? So power is distributed uh, unequally amongst all of us when we when we, when we distribute power through elections. And in fact, people who are, have a chance of winning elections are exceptional people, extraordinary people, sometimes for bad reasons, because they have certain properties and they, let's say charisma or, or money or social uh, visibility that are unevenly distributed in in the population. So, so I, I think the problem is not with individual voters. I don't think the problem is with their apathy or their irrationality or their carelessness. Surely there are people who are apathetic and careless, but I don't think it's the vast majority of people. It's with the incentives set up by this electoral system 
Uh, and the thing is that for a long time, like a lot of people, I thought, well, let's just fix this system. Let's just fix the incentives in this system, right? If we take money out of politics, if we, if we, you know, create a social and economic conditions where even a nurse can find the time to run for elections and, and you know, have a real chance of being elected. Well, actually, I no longer think this can be fixed in an empirical way, meaning that even if you assume ideal conditions, elections will still suffer from, from this problem of uh, biasing uh, the output towards the social and economic elite or any kind of elite uh, in the population, meaning any kind of subgroup that, that has properties that are unevenly distributed in the population. And that, in the end, is a real problem because it's, it's contrary to the meaning of democracy. The meaning of democracy is... Uh, uh, a system in which uh, people are treated equally and inclusively, and that's not what we get in our, our current system. Um, very well said, uh, Dr. Londemore. Um, it seems like the representative democracy is not really representative. Um, what is open democracy? Could you tell our uh, listeners uh, how you came up with this term? And uh, is there a way to uh, present a better alternative than we have today, a more inclusive uh, uh, outcome, so to speak? Yes, so so open democracy, it's a system in which uh, the, the center of power is kept as wide open as possible to the ordinary citizen, while not uh, turning into direct democracy, you know, where all people at all times would have to decide on everything. So how do you do that? Uh, you do that through essentially the resorts to random, or you might say, uh, if it's more easy to visualize, civic lotteries. Basically, all of us, let's say at birth, we're endowed with a with a unique number, and regularly when we when we hit 18, um, it's a legal majority, we get entered into civic lotteries that assign us to various uh, you know, political roles throughout the, the, our lives. And in particular, they will assign us at some point um, um, to a, a legislature uh, that, uh, you know, whose task is to set the agenda for perhaps another randomly selected body or, or perhaps an elected assembly, if we keep those. Um, but basically, where, where the first word uh, is to the people. And in fact, my ideal of open democracy is that you get randomly selected citizens, ordinary citizens, to constantly circulate in and out of power, to, to refresh uh, the ideas, the pool of ideas, to uh, constantly uh, sort of uh, maintain uh, the, 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 the lack of corruption and, and, and the, the, the honesty of, of, uh, of, of thoughts and intentions, so that you don't get um, a closure, an enclosure of power in a sort of separate uh, professionalized elite. So that's that's the idea. And I, I get the concept of open democracy. Well, I think I suppose it came relatively easily. Um, I did feel like the main characteristics of modern governments were their closedness, you know, the, the fact that Paris seemed only accessible to certain people, people with certain looks, accents, um, uh, connections, wealth, charisma, etc. 
and I and I always felt like, well, you know, not everyone can enter those buildings, like those parliaments. They're guarded. They're they're intimidating. Just not open. And so, by contrast, the sort of ideal seemed to be something that would be open and sort of kept the world. And it, it dovetailed neatly with, um, you know, the the ideals of uh, the open democracy, uh, the open society that that you have in, uh, in Karl Popper. So a, a sort of liberal ideal of, of a society that's. Uh, uh, open to ideas and, and uh, non-authoritarian, non-hierarchical. Uh, so I, I just politicized that more, if you want. Instead of uh, talking about a society that's open, I wanted to talk about a political system that's actually open. Yeah, it also rings a bell of open source and other things, although I'm absolutely. not sure. Absolutely. So that's absolutely true. So, so you know, in open source, the idea is that uh, anybody can modify the, the code, right? And, uh, yeah. and change it and improve it for the common good. And ideally, that's also what you'd want in a democracy. Like any one of us who has an idea about how to fix the law, to fix the rules, should be able to chip in um, and, and, and be part of the process, right? So, uh, so that's connected. And I, and I do think that also technologies may help us uh, uh, increase the roles of, 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 of citizens because one of the big challenges is the scale, right? When you have societies that, are, that count millions of citizens, how do you include them all in an organized way, in a way that, that, that uh, is not utter chaos and uh, doesn't let the, the most vocal or the most uh, uh, the, the people with the most intense preference take over? And, and so uh, that's the challenge and maybe technologies can help them. Uh, yeah, we're going to discuss that uh, in just a bit. But it seems like uh, there is a way to combine deliberation and the wisdom of crowds. Uh, and you talk about some practical examples like Finland, Iceland, uh, even France. Uh, do you think it's a model that can be applied to other countries as well, potentially more diverse countries like, say, uh, India or the US or the UK? Yes, yeah, so I always thought it was uh, applicable because most of the so-called democratic innovations of these um, experiments I looked at in small countries like Finland and Iceland are scalable. So one point I need to make, because I realize I've been talking as if uh, it's obvious, but maybe it's not, is that um, the reason why I'm not in favor of direct democracy, you know, a, a democracy of permanent referenda, like some people favor, is because of deliberation. I think you need this phase of thoughtful engagement with other people's points of views, preferably in a very diverse setting where you really encounter a diversity of points of view. So you need a moment of representation. And I think the, 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 one of the provocations of the book is to say, look, we, we associate representation and elections since the 18th century. We've been doing that sort of, uh, unconsciously since the 18th century. but it's just a contingent fact of history that we chose elections in the 18th century when we could have chosen lotteries to, to choose our representatives, right? So I'm just saying, look, we could, we could just start, you know, maybe not from scratch entirely, but we could just imagine a different version of representative democracy, which is based on uh, sortition, so random election or civic lotteries, rather than elections. And it would be a lot truer to the meaning of popular rule, so ruled by, uh, by the people, treated in an equal and inclusive manner. So, um, so that, that's an important thing to, to say, because my model re retains 
representative features, even as I reject the historical paradigm of representative democracy, because by that we tend to mean electoral democracy. So that's why I prefer to, to um, uh, use a different term to refer to my own model, open democracy. But it retains a core of representation, except it's done through the means of random election or civic lotteries rather than elections. So I'm sorry, I forgot in the process, I forgot your question, but... Uh, no, no, I mean, this is this is exactly what I was asking. I mean, I was just trying to uh, get to the practical aspects of it. Oh, the practical uh, aspects, yes, Iceland and Finland, correct. So, so yes, so, so when I, so those ideas, um, you know, that I got about open democracy, they came from the observation of uh, uh, empirical practices. I mean, when, when I finished my last book, I had, I still had a relatively, uh, conservative understanding of, of democracy, actually. I had, I had landed in a place where I thought sortition was essential, but I thought, well, we can just have rule by like a randomly selected body. And I just didn't necessarily see uh, the need to connect that body to the larger public. And then when I did this um, uh, experiment in Finland, we, it, was, it was an exercise in crowdsourcing where the government wanted to crowdsource, so outsource to the crowd, the, the the ideas for uh, a reform of the regulation for the reform of, of snowmobile uh, regulation basically because what happened in, in Finland is that uh, there was an exponential rise in the number of snowmobile uh, snowmobiles in the nor in north northern part of Finland and it caused all kinds of problems with reindeer uh, uh, you know herds with uh, uh, trees uh, being you know, uh, damaged, uh, etc. So, so, but then the snowmobile industry didn't want any interference. The lobbies prevented the, the, the elected legislators to make any change. So they thought, okay, let's try something completely new. Let's try to involve the public. And when I read through the comments that came to our platform, I was really impressed. I thought, well, actually the public has you know, enormous you know, potential to, to help find, find the best solutions. And, and, and I thought, well, then that must mean that even if we have a randomly selected body at the heart of, of the legislative system, it cannot be closed. It cannot be limited to the 100 people that are selected. It needs to be constantly open and uh, nourished in its thinking by the input of the people outside of it, so the people who are interested and, and, and can join voluntarily the, the, the deliberative platform. And I think uh, and one thing that really, sorry. No, no, I was going to say, and then the worry then was that, well, because we got like you know, a few uh, thousand comments at most, and that's still manageable, and, and yet it's still a lot of work, right? So the worry is that, oh, what if you did that in a much larger country, and you got, you know, millions of comments, who's going to read all of it? So that could seem a worry, but in fact, thanks to technologies, I think we could we could sort of synthesize that relatively quickly and well well enough to, to so that it's usable and digestible by um by the legislators. And so in Iceland, same thing. I mean, the the the, the design that they used in 2011 to rewrite their constitution is completely scalable. It started with a group of 950 randomly selected citizens who over a day, you know, came together and listed the values and principles they wanted to see in their constitution. So, for example, among them was uh, the idea of a right, uh, I'm sorry, that's later, uh, the idea of a, of a, a, a 
collectivization of the natural resources that were not already privately owned, uh, and a set of uh, you know uh, ambitions and, and and values that uh, made complete sense given the, the, the you know the, the culture there, and they were transferred to a, a group of 25 uh, elected uh, citizens. But they were not professional politicians. They were elected from a pool that excluded professional politicians. So the, the, those 25s were a lot more diverse uh, in their skill sets and, and profession than uh, people in, in, uh, in parliament. And those 25, on the basis of what the 950 randomly selected that said, wrote a text that then was put to a referendum that passed by you know, two thirds of the votes. And then this, uh, this decision, uh, the text was not uh, turned into law. But the, the point is that the text they produced was of high quality. I, I spent some time reading it, assessing it in comparative manner with uh, expert drafts which at the same time, and I guarantee you it's an excellent text. You can read it online, it's translated in English. And all of the steps of that very interesting process are scalable. You can have a randomly selected sample of agenda setters, if you will, in any country of any size. You can have an elected assembly of uh, people writing the, 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 the draft in, in any country, obviously, uh, although my preference might be for an actually randomly selected body and perhaps a larger one. And then the crowdsourcing phase. So th the fact that this uh, body of 25 put online their successive drafts for the whole country to chip in and give their opinion about various uh, articles and, and formulations uh, is also scalable. So, and, and of course, the referenda at the end, we, we do regularly in many countries. So to me, uh, I always thought that these processes were scalable. The problem is that objectors always pointed out the fact that these examples took place in very small countries and very homogeneous countries. So Iceland is, is really the size of a large city. Uh, it's 230,000, uh, sorry, it's 320,000 people. Uh, and then uh, Finland is, uh, I think, a few million people. And then Ireland, the most successful to date, I, I didn't study it myself, but it's a very important example of a sort of prototype of open democracy, at least in, in one aspect. They, they passed um, uh, a, a, a sort of constitutional reforms allowing gay marriage and abortion, respectively in 2004 in 2018 on the basis of the proposals by randomly selected assemblies of 100 people each. Um, and so that's considered, you know, in, in, in my world, an enormous success for, for the idea that uh, this kind of randomly selected bodies can produce good laws or, or form the, the basis for proposals that then are turned into laws through referenda or other things. But the problem is like there again, in one of the most successful cases, we were dealing with a very small country, 5 million people, and a very homogeneous one, very white, very Christian. So every time I run into that obstacle. But then luckily for me last year, what happened is that my own country of France, um, uh, you know, uh, got into a, a crisis. Uh, the you know, the Gilets Jaunes. You probably heard of them, yet the, 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 the Gilets Jaunes. Yellow vests uh, went on the street, demonstrated uh, for months, uh, broke things on the Champs Elysees. Uh, basically, it really threatened power in, in a big way. 
and uh, and 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 uh, President Macron decided to answer this crisis in I think in what I think was the only reasonable way, which was through a deliberative, wide-scale consultation that we call uh, the Great National Debate. Because as you know, everything is great in France, so it had to be <laughs> national debate. And it lasted about two months. Uh, it's you know it stopped everything. Uh, people talked about it a lot. Uh, there were many ways to enter that debate. You could uh, go online and put your suggestion on a platform. The platform was terrible, actually, so that's probably the least interesting aspect. But it gathered two million uh, submissions, right? So it's Quite, a, quite, a, quite impressive. Uh, you could also join one of the 10,000 uh, local meetings that happen all around the country. And if you were lucky, you were also thrown into um, 21 randomly selected assemblies that took place at the regional level. So, you know, multi, multiple methods were used to include people in relatively new ways. And what's exciting, in particularly in particular with the, you know, this set of 21 regional assemblies, because they drew in people who had never participated in politics whatsoever. So you got a, a new sample of people interested, motivated, and you can tell in those contexts these people are not apathetic, not uninterested, uh, not passive. On the contrary, you you, you cannot imagine the. Uh, amount of, of, of goodwill and effort and passion people brought to the assembly. So on the basis of that, Macron then uh, decided to create in, in the, this past fall, in October, uh, a nationwide uh, citizens assembly. So we, we, call, we call it uh, the Citizens Convention on Climate Change, so on the issue of climate change. And uh, after spending already close to, to I think, I think um, 12 million euros on the great national debate, they decided to spend uh, almost 5 million euros on this new you know, nationwide uh, random sample of 150 uh, French citizens. And they've been meeting since October for, for six times now. So the, the next weekend is the sixth time. And there will be a seventh meeting uh, in, um, in March where they're going to deliver their recommendations to the French president about how to reduce France's carbon um, emissions or green gas emissions by 40% of the 1990s levels and the whole thing in the, the spirit of social justice. So it's an enormous task that was asked of them uh, to perform. They've been advised by experts. They've been supported by an incredible staff of facilitators. Uh, and, and, and it's a big unknown, will it work? But as far as I'm concerned, it has already worked. I mean, the, the, the way um, the deliberations have been conducted have been very successful. I think they're heading for some really interesting proposals. Uh, and you can see that this worked in a country that's, uh, that counts 67 million citizens and is the most multicultural in Europe. So I told you this very long story just to conclude that from my perspective, the objection that um, certain aspects of my ideal of open democracy could only work in small homogeneous countries has been falsified. You know? uh, it can oh, be it can be done in a lot more countries. So, of course, you might say, well, okay, but India, it's, uh, it's other ballpark altogether. Like, it's, it's, uh, it's an enormous country. Uh, 
multiple languages, multiple religions, uh, and indeed that's the next uh, that's the next challenge. But um, based on other you know forms of empirical evidence about the feasibility of uh, large scale uh, deliberation among multilingual groups, I am also convinced it's it's just a matter of setting the incentives right, uh, investing enough time and money into the, the you know, the, 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 the infrastructure, and I'm sure this can be done. In fact, I'm always shocked by, you know, we, we're, we're completely um, desensitized to the, the amount of money that's going into electoral politics. So Mike Bloomberg, to go back to him, spent 500 million just on his, you know, a couple of, of uh, uh, weeks. I mean, how long was he in campaign anyway? And yeah, hundreds of millions well, a week. Well, people are horrified <laughs> because we spent 12 million, 12 million euros on the Great National Debate and 5 million euros on, on this um, convention on climate change. I think it's peanuts money. I think we should really start investing a lot more in, in authentically in inclusive and democratic designs because it, it's, it's, it's a, it, it will pay off. It, it's worth it. Um, and, and so I'm always shocked that we're willing to pour money you know, into advertisement, into uh, lobbies, consulting, and all kinds of things that are not that productive from a democratic point of view, and and, and yet be stingy on, you know, on on institutions that could involve um, regular citizens in a, in a in a good and productive way. For example, um, the Irish citizens' uh, assemblies didn't pay their participants. Well, at least we made some. Progress and, and, and in fact, the, the the 21 regional assemblies of the French uh, national debate also didn't pay the participants. But if you don't pay participants, then you deprive yourself of the wisdom of people who can't afford to come. You know, so you you just need to start taking people's time seriously and compensate. And, and that's what the government in France did uh, for this convention on climate change. People, and it's not that much money. I think they could probably be paid more. But they paid them the the, the, the sort of uh, honorarium you get when you when you participate in a criminal jury. Uh, so it's about 80 euros a day or something like that. Yeah, it's at least some incentive for people to actually think of it as work. Uh, I mean, this yeah. is thank you so much for sharing. It's it's uh, it's fascinating to hear what's happening in France. Um, you know, do you think that when it comes to technical issues like artificial intelligence, climate change, uh, a randomly selected sample is going to be technically equipped to handle the challenges. Uh, you did mention that it doesn't mean that experts are out, but uh, they can consult. So uh, you believe that a randomly selected sample who consults with an expert will perhaps produce an equally good result, perhaps a better result than, say, a set of experts. Is that right? I th yes, I think that's what I believe in the end. I, I think, you know, you can have two models. Either you put experts at the center and they regularly consult the people. Right. Or you do the opposite. And I'm, I'm really convinced now that the opposite model is probably better, in part because the... Um, uh, and, and maybe I'm wrong. And, and this is really something where I think we, we need to, um, you know, uh, run more experiments, basically, to... to, to conclude something you know a bit more solid than than you know pure speculations but, but i still think that in terms of agenda setting we should have a random sample because it's about values and preferences and those are typically not technical but actually even on technical issues and this is not something i was actually uh, 
I, I, I anticipated that much. I, I thought the the climate change was probably too technical myself. But then when I've seen these um, citizens in action, what I what I see as their main contribution is that they constantly reopen the boxes that are closed and locked by experts. So experts have great ideas, but they tend to think in within within frameworks and uh, you know using concepts and, and, and models that are uh, kind of fixed. And what, what I've seen the, 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 the citizens do when they listen to them and they ask questions is constantly force them to reopen their assumptions, um, question their methods. And, and, and in fact, their naivete uh, plays in favor of, of the collective wisdom of the group. Because if, so, so the ideal, in fact, is to combine the input of the experts and the input of the citizens in the best possible way. And I think uh, the the, the system in which the, the experts are, are um, at the center and the citizens are sometimes consulted, but in a very superficial way and, and sort of a uh, yeah, superficial way, not, not very deep, not very serious, and with the assumption that in the end the experts know best, has proven its limits already. We know that it doesn't work that well. So let's try something different. Uh, I think these um, citizen assemblies have proven themselves already on very technical issues like electoral reform in British Columbia in 2004. Uh, they've proven themselves on uh, perhaps slightly less technical issues, but very difficult issues uh, like abortion and, and, um, and gay marriage in Ireland. Uh, they've proven themselves, uh, uh, well, actually, it's less true in, in, uh, in Iceland because the, the people who drafted the constitution were actually elected. But I'm, my own conviction is that they could have done a decent job uh, if they had been randomly selected as well. So again, I'm not sure what the, the uh, basically I don't have a clear idea what the perfect model is. It could be a hybrid assembly. So for example, in Ireland, something I forgot to mention, the first assembly was actually uh, two third two-third randomly selected citizens, one third elected officials. And it worked out quite well. So I'm, I'm only dealing in models. I'm a political theorist. I'm a political philosopher. So I'm only looking at this in part um, first through a deductive model, right? And then I, I, I uh, nurture it and I, I complement it with empirical observations. But it could be that um, what's really needed is something that we will only figure out through trial and error, like a, like a hybrid system. It's very hard to... to, to sort of model and, 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 and to anticipate its, its merits um, from a philosophical perspective. No, absolutely. I think there's no reason not to try. And I think what uh, further strengthens uh, your hypothesis is that if you look at campaigns, the skills that are required to get elected are very different from the skills that are required to absolutely. actually run, run the government. Yeah. And I think a lot of the politicians have to, you know, learn from the basics, learn quickly. Um, and many times they lack the kind of cognitive diversity that, say, a wisdom of crowd or a randomly collected sample can have. So I think that definitely this model surely seems like one that should be tried. I should um, add, um, if I may, um, when I said experts at the center, actually, I was thinking of actual scientific experts. But it's true that we tend to call experts elected officials. And my conviction yeah. is that they're not really experts. I mean, the reality is that bills are written by, uh, you know, they're outsourcing the writing of bills and, and laws to lobbies, to uh, to actual experts, to uh, to, to, to consulting firms, to and, firms and, they yeah. want to give business to. 
And so it's not clear that what are they doing? They are spending their time campaigning for re-election. They are posturing in, in, in you know, large assemblies. They are posturing on TV to gain our votes. I, I, I'm, I guess I'm, I, I'm not completely uh, entirely disillusioned with them. I think probably there's probably still a role even in my model for for them. And I, I think their ambition and and devotion and 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 you know the talent of many of them is something to be recognized. But I just think that theoretically, uh, at least, I find more promise in the in the um, civic lottery and the randomly selected uh, assemblies, at least for the for the moment. In fact, you even offered uh, a lot of historical context for something like this, like in the form of what you call lotocracy or mini publics. Uh, like, how was it back in the day? And uh, is there something that in the historical past we can look at for inspiration? Yes. Yeah, so first of all, the, the term lotocracy is not mine. I borrow it from uh, Alex Guerrero, who is a philosopher at the uh, University of Rutgers, who is also very much uh, a proponent of a, of a randomly based system. We we are we're a whole you know cohort of uh, of theorists who believe in this now. So, uh, um, and and I should say that yes, of course, the, there's a precedent for for these ideas that is to be found in uh, classical Athens. So. They, the, the ancient Greeks had a model which is much closer to what I mean by open democracy, even though it had all these extreme flaws of excluding, you know, women and, and slaves and metics and foreigners. Um, but uh, if you looked at the, the people who counted as citizens, the, the logic of the distribution of power there was extremely democratic because it didn't rely on elections. The Greeks didn't have elections. They only used elections for uh, the choice of generals and some, some administrators. But when it came to positions of power that, ha that had to do with making the law, it was all based on either random selection, so civic lotteries, or uh, open assemblies that anybody could join, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so of course, and it worked. So the big question is, okay, but maybe it worked because it was so small, you know, there were 30,000 um, citizens in Athens, really, and it was very ethnically homogeneous. So the same kind of objections that are pointed out uh, when I bring up the case of Iceland um, or, or Finland or Ireland. I actually don't think that's um, a good objection because even 30,000 people, it's still too many people for them to make decisions all together at once. So when, when we call when we talk about this model as a model of direct democracy, um, it's not entirely true. I think they, they, they did have uh, representative mechanisms. For example, this uh, council of 500 that set the agenda for the open assembly, uh, it, it was based on a delegation of power to subset, right? The people wrote it in, in and out of power. It wasn't all of them at once because you needed some kind of deliberative exchanges uh, among themselves to, to come up with an agenda. And then among the 30,000 citizens, uh, you know, only 6,000 ever showed up to the open assembly. So it was a subset of them. I, I tend to see that as a form of what I call self-selected representation, uh, where the selection mechanism is just your, your desire to join, basically. But the, the meeting place was not big enough. The clique, they called it at the time. Uh, was not big enough to 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 allow all 30,000 of them to meet. So there was a selection process um, to 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 limit the number of people actually making the decision in that assembly. 
Understood. Um, in your forthcoming book, uh, uh, Open Democracy, you talk about uh, the five requirements for it. So one is equal and universal participatory rights, uh, deliberation as part of uh, the process, majority rule, democratic representation, and transparency. I understand all of them, but uh, could you provide more color into majority rule and what do you mean by that? Yes, majority rule actually is... is uh, uh, I, I think it's really important, and I, and I think that if you look at the institutions we've evolved since the 18th century, they're surprisingly counter-majoritarian. So we've we've uh, we've evolved institutions that are bicameral, for example, uh, supposedly because it's uh, meant to slow down the process and make room for greater deliberation. I, at least in the U.S., I'm not sure that's what we got. Uh, I think. Uh, you you get gridlock and and uh, and statu quo bias, which always tend to favor the interests of a minority. So you end up with a system which is characterized by minority uh, as opposed to majority. And why is that? I, I I'm not going to speculate whether it was by design or or by accident, but the fact is that there was a great fear um, in the 18th and 19th century of the so-called uh, tyranny of the majority. And here my, my uh, uh, you know, fellow French theorist, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, did a lot of damage because he coined that phrase, the tyranny of the majority. And when he diagnosed something real, I think in the end you have to consider that you're either facing um, uh, tyranny of the majority or tyranny of, of the minority and so both are equally bad and so you create institutions that are, are meant to curb it uh, to curb any form of tyranny whether by the minor minority of the majority but that doesn't mean you want to eliminate the possibility for a majority to have its way uh, when it comes to, to decisions that are constitutional and, and perfectly legal and are not uh, violating anybody's rights so uh, I think we have to accept the fact that, uh, you know, democracy also means majority rule. And sometimes we won't like it. So, you know, whether you take, a, uh, you, you, in particular, you take Brexit, the Brexit decision, uh, well, it, I think at that point, it's pretty clear that, that that's what the, the British people really wanted. So I, for a long time, I thought, well, maybe if they had had a, um, you know, a deliberative, randomly selected assembly to think through those issues and they would have, Concluded, you know, uh, you know, something closer to what I, I think is the right answer. But it turns out that uh, I think now that the recent elections show, I think that this was this was not a fluke. This was not a mistake. This was something that they they really wanted. So, so learning to accept decisions by the majority is also really an important part of the of the model because I think uh, the alternative is ruled by the minority. And, and it's also an alternative to what I see as a, as a wrong interpretation of the deliberative democracy ideal. So in the 90s, when this ideal started being theorized, um, including by people like uh, you know, Jürgen Habermas, Josh Cohen, uh, John Dreisek, uh, Besset, lots of people, uh, I think we confused deliberation and consensus. We, we had this idea that you know, we, we're seeking to get everybody on board, which is a good thing, but it must mean the decision needs to be taken by consensus. 
And the problem with you when you define the end of your deliberation as consensus, it creates it creates a pressure to conform among members of the group. And I think that's that's really counterproductive uh, because you don't want you want to preserve dissent. You want to preserve people who you know the freedom of people to disagree. So I'm much more in favor of something I called I call a positive dissensus with my uh, co-author Scott Pitt. We came up with a phrase where Sometimes it's just better to end the deliberation with a, with a positive dissensus where we agree to disagree and then take a vote where everybody chooses, you know, in their own conscience uh, about what they deem to be the best option. And then you just accept the majority verdict. Uh, so, so that's why I thought it was very important to have that in, uh, in the list of uh, principles just after deliberation, actually. Uh, this is very helpful context. Uh, you know, open democracy, open source. Uh, very briefly, could you touch upon how this technology or how will technology um, augment open democracy or or take it in the other direction? Or threaten it, you mean? Yeah. So so I think technology is, um, I, I, you know, I'm a congenital optimist, so I, I, I'm not as scared by... It's a good thing to be. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I can't help it anyway, so that's, that's what I contribute to the conversation, I guess. Um, I, I'm not as scared by uh, technology as some people are. Um, I don't know. My, I'm not a specialist, so this is going to sound very, uh, you know, uh, non-technical. But I, I have this Google uh, device at home, and I'm really shocked by how, you know, unhelpful and, and stupid and 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 uh, not uh, not impressive at all it is. It can't translate anything. It uh, it doesn't know anything about uh, French pop from the 80s. Uh, doesn't uh, uh, it still hasn't adjusted to the various accents in my in my household? I mean, which so, is what Serbian, French, and English, right? Yes, exactly. Quite a multinational household. Yes, and and you think, oh my God, if there's AI in there, it should really learn. It's it's learning nothing as far as I can tell. So same thing for <laughs> um, for uh, self-driving cars. I I anticipate that is except on a very sunny, you know. Uh, beautiful highway in California, it's not going to work anywhere. I, I can't anticipate how it would work. I, I just, I can't imagine how it would work here with all the snow we have, for example, on the East Coast. So I just don't know. I feel like we're far away from, from an actual real threat. Even when it comes to what happened during the elections and in the US or in the UK, I, I still haven't seen an actually convincing demo, empirical demonstration that these, you know, targeting tools, uh, ads and stuff like that actually caused the result. I think that Trump could have win without them. I think that Brexit probably would have happened without them. I, I really am not as scared, let's put it that way for now. And in terms of the help they can provide, sadly, <laughs> but it's a flip side of that is that I, I'm not, I mean, I think they're useful, but they could be a lot more useful than, than they currently are. So when I look at what the the French um, did, for example, in the great national debate. So as I said, we got a ton of input from the population in the great national debate. Two million contributions on the uh, on the online platform, uh, 100,000 pages of PDF, you know, that were digitized by the, the National Public Library uh, for, from the from the local meetings and um, uh, local uh, grievance books that people wrote. And how, do you, how are you going to deal with all that mass of information? So the government paid private companies to, to digest all of that and, and give summaries and, and do data analysis, basically. But what did they use? They used uh, knowledge trees, 
which are you know uh, methods that, that were invented more or less in the 60s and classic statistical analysis methods um, that I think are quite old so not like AI helped in any way um, and then in the so one thing that I've heard of that could be promising is that I'm, I'm told uh, Jim Fishkin the Center for Deliberative Democracy he has in a, in, at Stanford has developed an algorithm called ALICE that's supposed to um, help facilitate large meetings. So, I, okay, if that works, I'm, I'd, I'd, I'd love to see it. I'd love to, you know, try it. Because that, um, that, that, there's a problem of cost, you know, in, in, in my proposals, although I said that we should invest more money into democratic institutions, but it's costly to have, uh, uh, you know, human facilitators at tables of six, seven people for, you know, large-scale meetings, especially if you do many of them. So if we could if we could automate that, um, why not? You know, um, that would be uh, very useful. But so far, um, I I don't see the threat nor the promise so much. That um, no, this is super helpful. I mean, in a way, Network Capital, our community, is uh, trying to democratize career intelligence to open source career intelligence. Uh, so we totally resonate with many of your thoughts. Um, my last set of questions, uh, if you have time, is yes. focused on uh, open democracy and what it can teach the modern workplace. Do you think some of the principles that you espouse are applicable to, say, corporates and startups and just generally a workplace? Um, by making it uh, more democratic and actually making it more democratic, not just setting up a, a V team that keeps having virtual meetings. Yes, I, I think it's absolutely applicable. Uh, it's something that I hope to look more into in the future. But I think, you know, the, these large corporations are in many ways political organizations. So it's something that uh, also my, my co-author Isabel Ferraz has been arguing for. And uh, I think more and more people are acknowledging that there are issues of power uh, distribution, justice, uh, equity, fairness in the workplace, uh, basic freedom and non-domination. I mean, all, all these concepts that we study on a daily basis in political theory, uh, uh, by applying them to narrowly defined political settings, actually can can travel to the economic setting of, of uh, corporations and workplaces. Uh, and so, for example, you could imagine um, reinventing the governance structure of firms along the lines of an open democracy, right? So you could, so my, my, for example, my, my friend Isabel Ferraz, again, she, she envisages a classic bicameral system where you'd have a, a chamber for labor and a chamber for capital, but both would be elected. You know? So she's thinking on the, on the classical model of, of the democracies we know. And I'm thinking, why not then just you know, randomly assign uh, workers to, to at least one of those chambers so that you get a greater diversity. Because otherwise, what's going to happen? The classic hierarchies and uh, inequities will be reproduced. These chambers will be peopled mostly by men, mostly by white people. And, and, and so it will be better in some ways, but it will still leave out uh, the minorities and, and, and all the silent majorities that are classically ignored in the electoral system. So shy people, women, people of color, uh, people with no charisma. Those people have needs and interests and insights too. And I just I'm advocating for governance systems that recognize uh, those people as well, that basically diffuse and distribute power equally. 
Now, this is such a fascinating insight. Uh, you know, this uh, this conversation has left us with so many uh, mental models and questions that we as a group want to um, you want to discuss and come back to you with during a masterclass. Uh, but thank you very much. This podcast goes out to 100,000 subscribers all around the world, France, US, uh, China, uh, India, what have you. And uh, we look forward to keeping in touch and hosting you again very soon. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Karsha. Yeah, see you soon.